Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. In episode two of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce podcast, powered by Brownstein's Women's Leadership Initiative, Brownstein shareholder and CWCC board member Sarah Mercer hosts Amber McReynolds, CEO for the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition, and former director of elections for the city and county of Denver. Sarah and Amber discuss Amber's new book, When Women Vote, recent voting trends, and some of the most significant changes to voting in Colorado. Welcome to another episode of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce podcast series powered by Brownstein's Women's Leadership Initiative. I'm Sarah Mercer, and today with me is Amber McReynolds. I'm so excited to have you here, Amber. I'm excited to be here. So Amber is one of the nation's leading experts on election administration and policy. She's the chief executive officer of the National Vote at Home Institute and is the former director of elections for the city and county of Denver. She's also the co-author with Stephanie Donner of a new book, When Women Vote. Amber, it's so great. You've received so much recognition for your work and what you're doing around the country. In 2018, Amber was named the top public official of the year by Governing Magazine, and she is going to be receiving next week from the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce an award for being one of Colorado's top 25 most powerful women. So we are so appreciative that you're here. So let's kind of dive in. So you had the book launch last night. It was such a great event at History Colorado. 350 to 400 people were there to help celebrate and learn a little bit about what you and your co-author, Stephanie Donner, have discovered through this journey of writing the book. Tell us about the book. Tell us about kind of, uh, you know, how you got started in thinking about writing it. Yeah, so it was an incredible evening. I mean, we're so grateful and humbled by the incredible support that we've got from, you know, the, our community in, in Denver and Colorado, but in particular, our um, amazing women friends that are kind of in all of our different networks. And it's just been um, incredible to feel the outpouring of support and the excitement that I think the book has, has generated amongst a lot of our, our different friendships uh, that we have across the board. It's interesting because Stephanie and I have been friends since around 2013, which was when Stephanie at that time was in the governor's office, um, and I was director of elections and was working on the uh, biggest reform package that Colorado um, really has had in terms of a big structural change with regards to our elections and how they're run. Um, and so we were both kind of in different areas of that, and we met that way. We met kind of through that uh, legislation and then and then became friends and um, started to kind of cultivate, get closer as friends over time. And what's interesting is at that time, we were both pregnant with our second children, and Marcus was born a month before Kenton, so they're about a month apart. But we have six-year-old boys that are also really good friends now. Um, so it's kind of fun that, that they um, we have that mutual connection, being moms, and then also you know met while we were both about to have the, our, our second kids. I really love how the forward of the book, you've got all of your kids who write about their perspectives and sort of their own forwards about, you know, why people should read the book. And yeah, your son's perspectives are really, really adorable. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were super fun. We, we uh, talked about that at length, like who would, who would write the foreword and, you know, one day we were, you know, chatting and we kind of came up with the idea of, of the kids each writing a piece of it. And, you know, we asked them and they were like, yeah, I mean, the girls were a lot more excited, I think, initially. And the boys were like, well, what are we supposed to write about? And then, you know, we kind of talked with them and they all wrote their own paragraphs, which was really cool. 
I think it was such a perfect introduction to the book too, because it's emblematic of what's in the book, which I really feel like is your, your heart and soul and Stephanie's heart and soul. So tell us a little bit about kind of how that project got off the ground after you and Stephanie met. Yeah. So I, um, you know, served as director of elections in Denver for a long time and, uh, and Stephanie continued her career in, in various ways uh, around Denver, uh, Galvanize and now at Emily Griffith. And we, you know, obviously talk about each other's work and what's happening and all that over time. Um, and, you know, when I'm in circles, I usually end up talking about the voting process in some way and the work I'm doing. And that happened a lot. And then in 2018, uh, I left the Denver Elections Office to head up the National Vote at Home Institute. And Stephanie called me about a week before the November 2018 election. And she said, oh, my goodness, what's happening in Texas? And they had just put out a uh, news release basically warning voters to check their ballots on the electronic voting machines because they were having malfunctioning problems with uh, votes flipping after vote uh, they were being uh, chosen on the machines. And so voters were seeing different things than what was on the paper. And the Texas Secretary of State put out a notice to voters. And Stephanie said, what is going on? Like, I can't believe that this is, you know, happening. And, um, and I said, Steph, like, do this is what I always talk about in our, you know, when we're talking about voting stuff, like there are so many issues around the country that um, are challenging for voters, whether it be old systems that don't work very well or barriers in the process or voter registration, restrictive deadlines, you know, whatever it may be, there's issues kind of across the board. And we just, that conversation like kind of drove the entire thing because, you know, at the end of it, she's like, well, we need to, you know, we, we, we need to do something about this. And I was like, I totally agree. Every day, you know, this is kind of the work I do, but I think there's more we can do. And we literally started texting and talking almost every day about um, what we could do. And we, you know, started to kind of map out a storyline for the book right around December of 2018. Um, and then we worked on it for uh, about a year and uh, a little under a year to, to do the full writing process. And we storyboarded, we, you know, created ideas. And and the beautiful thing about it, it was it, is that it was two friends coming together to, you know, try to do something that isn't going to get us a bunch of literary awards, but something that we could um, put the story out there, encourage others to think about these things long term. You know, and I- I, Stephanie, last night when she was on stage and sort of talking about her journey with this book, I mean, you know, she started with the letter that she wrote her daughter before the morning of the 2016 presidential election and telling her daughter, you know, this morning you're going to wake up and when you go to bed tonight, you're going to go to bed and have the first, the first woman president. And I think that shares a little bit about where, you know, Stephanie's political um, leanings are. But, you know, this book is not a partisan book. And uh, one of the most incredible things about how you talk about elections, I think, is you really bring it home for people that the output um, or what happens in election really doesn't matter. What we should all really care about is what the inputs are. And we should really care about whether or not people are enfranchised. That, that's right. And, you know, it is a nonpartisan book. All the work I've done in my career uh, on election reform, on voting reform has been nonpartisan. Um, I'm actually a proud member of the unaffiliated party, so I've always been unaffiliated. Um, and, you know, now in the recent data in Colorado, over 40% of voters are unaffiliated in Colorado, and new voters are registering unaffiliated at a 61% rate. Wow. So there is a significant 
trend in terms of people saying, you know what, I don't need the party label to make a decision about what I'm going to do in, in the election and on the ballot. Um, and so, you know, my um, perspective has always been that we need to put voters first, similar to how companies and businesses put customers first. We need to put voters first. We need to sort of center our policies around what makes sense for them, including streamlining the voting process, making it easier, eliminating five-hour lines. Um, and when we look at the landscape, the interesting thing is in 2016, uh, 80 million people did not participate. So the turnout in the 2016 presidential election was 61% across the country. And that is abysmal, frankly, because that means that essentially 31, 32% of the population made a decision. And uh, our perspective in the book is when we change these structural uh, systems, make it easier, streamline the process, all of that, it benefits all voters, and we see higher engagement and higher turnout, which ultimately leads to better politics and better policies. We've seen so many of those changes in Colorado since 2013. Can you give us kind of from your perspective the sort of before and after 2013 and then even what's happened in the last few years, especially with our first ever open all-by-mail presidential primary? Yeah. So, I mean, I ran elections in Denver for almost 14 years. So I started in 2005, uh, a long time ago. It was three voting systems ago. Uh, so we've been, you know, been through a lot of change. And the interesting thing, when I started there, I was only 26 years old. In the interview process that I had with the city, and, um, you know, I was, the, the comment was, aren't you a little young to be applying for this job? And that question sort of resonated with me because I thought, wow, I wonder what the culture is like in the office when I get there. And come to find out it was an office that was very adverse to change. And I started a journal. I started keeping notes about things that could be improved, customer processes that could be improved, uh, laws that could be changed, um, barriers that could be eliminated to make the customer's experience easier. And I kept that journal for a few years and then you know, Denver had a bad election in 2006, which was a technology failure. And then that really catapulted the city to make direct changes in the governance of elections in the city. And that's when, you know, I got, I was, got promoted after all that happened to a management position and then was able to start making changes internally. Um, and then by 2011 was appointed to be the director. And then I started focusing on the policy stuff at the state level and making and pulled out my journal. And I was like, look, I've got a playbook on how to make these things better. But all through all of that, we also saw a trend among voters where they were requesting to get their ballot by mail. Uh, so we kept seeing an upward tick. And by 2012, we saw about 75% of voters in Denver and about on average 72% statewide that said, we want to get our ballot by mail. And so after that point, it didn't really make sense to keep spending the amount of money we were spending on the old antiquated assigned polling places and making voters go to these you know, smaller locations when the majority of voters were actually asking for the convenience at their, ho at their homes. So a, a coalition of a few different groups, and I was one of the few election officials in the room for um, the first meetings that we had on the 2013 legislation, uh, we got together, and uh, the first priority for many of the coalition members, honestly, was registration reform. And what um, one thing that I was able to bring the, to the table was to say, 
we can't just do one piece. We have to do registration reform. We have to also make it easier to vote with the method that people are asking for um, and do this sort of comprehensive reform. And that's kind of how the bill um, sort of changed to become this bigger uh, comprehensive package. Where you started out as such an important story for how, you know, elections really are so localized, too. And um, there are certainly federal laws that overlay over the state laws. But it really comes down to what's going on with that local election official in the local jurisdiction. But you were able, by getting so many people together, to make a really big change. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with our open primary system? We've had big changes you know, not just with the presidential, but also with the general elections as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so uh, 2016, 107 and 108 passed, and that was initiated by the voters. Um, interestingly enough, the year before, the legislature had a package in front of them that would have done the same thing, and they rejected it. Interestingly enough, that's not unlike most legislative bodies across the country. I mean, we see both sides of the aisle not wanting to open up their primaries because it's an unknown and it's a change and there's, you know, that's kind of a, a barrier to seeing, seeing progress. Uh, but the reality is when we have 40% or more now of Colorado saying that they don't want a party label, but yet they're still taxpayers and they still pay for these elections, it's, it's, it's not fair to kind of say, well, they shouldn't be able to participate or they shouldn't be able to sort of do the, the filtering of candidates, if you will, to get to the general ballot. Uh, so the uh, that citizen initiative went to the ballot in 107 and 108, and it passed. And, you know, voters said, we want, we want to see this happen. Uh, the interesting thing after that is sort of after it passed, the legislature added some additional requirements onto that, including um, requiring that unaffiliated voters uh, basically have their the party they choose recorded in their official vote file. So it's not exactly secret uh, for unaffiliated to, to not declare, if you will, but it is recorded in their vote file now. So parties and the public can see if they voted Republican or they voted Democrat, not what who they choose, but which party they participated in. So the legislature did that. So we're not fully open as many states are, like California or Washington, but we're semi-open. And we're seeing more and more of that across the country, and I think Colorado is definitely in the, you know, in a larger group of states that have opened up the primaries to, to include more people, um, because frankly, more people around the country are choosing to not have a party label. Uh, so, you know, states, I think, are recognizing they want to include those voters in the process. And then the other big change that also came through with 107 and 108 certainly was that change in other state and local offices that, you know, the primary selection was by mail, but mm -hmm. was still a closed primary. But with the presidential, we had a separate, that separate initiative 108, mm -hmm. which uh, got rid of the caucus system entirely. So that, that's a really big change. Yeah. And the caucus is still going to happen. They're just not going to make, it's more of a presidential primary preference poll uh, through, the, through the primary that everyone will participate in, or hopefully everyone will participate in. Um, so it is a big change because it was sort of this in-person caucus that was less than 5% of Coloradans participating in the caucus process. Um, and so this is going to mail everyone a ballot. Uh, including unaffiliateds, and give them that choice, which is really exciting and interesting and um, brings back the presidential primary, which I think is a good thing for Colorado. Well, so what else are you seeing kind of around the country in terms of just general trends? Like 
so you've got your playbook mm-hmm. that, and you've implemented some of it. Mm-hmm. What are the pages that you haven't yet gotten to yet? Are you willing to share those with us? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, what's interesting is Western states have frankly led in terms of election reform. And that isn't unlike suffrage. And we actually show this in the book. There's, um, when you look at the suffrage map as of 1919, all the Western states had enfranchised women. And then the Midwestern states and kind of the middle of the country was sort of, they would enfranchise, but only on local elections or only on certain elections, not everything. And then the East Corridor basically had no enfranchisement of voters. Very few states mm-hmm. had, had done that. So what, the West kind of led in that. The West also led in various civil rights movement um, changes. And we're seeing the same thing with regards to voting access. So Western states in 2018, almost 70% of voters west of the Mississippi voted on a mail ballot. That stat is very different when you go east of the Mississippi because there's still states that require a doctor's note for you to get a mail ballot to you at home. There are still states that require that, and that's at the national vote. Missouri has no early voting. They have a 30-day registration cutoff. You can't get a mail ballot unless you have an excuse, either from a doctor or from an employer or what have you. So... It is really hard to vote in many states if you're working multiple jobs, if you're at school, if you're a single mom or a mom and dad with kids and you have all these responsibilities. Whatever your case may be, it's difficult. And so the National Vote at Home Institute, we're trying to change that. It is a state-by-state change. So it's not like a, you know, certain things can be done at the federal level, but for the most part, these these legislative changes for elections are state by state. Uh, we just got five bills passed expanding vote by mail um, in one chamber in Virginia last week. This past week, we've had that going on. We got a really great package of reforms in Pennsylvania recently. Um, and both of those two states, these are the first reforms they've passed in decades um, in terms of making it easier to vote. So... We're going to continue to see that across the country. Uh, A lot of states are picking up on the fact that this makes it easier for voters, but it also streamlines the election process from an administration perspective, which matters because it saves money in in most cases. So so we're seeing that trend, and I think it'll continue. I think very similar to suffrage, it's sort of this rolling kind of incremental thing across the country that's happening. So for those states that are sort of leading, where do they go next? There was, it was reported on the news, I think a few days ago, that there was a small um, conservation district, I think, in Washington that mm-hmm. was did some mobile voting. What is... Yeah, well, so Denver actually uh, just piloted a mobile voting app in the municipal election for military voters. The you know National Vote at Home Institute, we advocate for highly available and accessible voting. Uh, mail ballots is one of those options. And then we know that some voters need accessible options or some voters, like military voters, need options that don't require logistics like transporting a physical ballot from overseas. Um, so we have to make sure we have an inclusive voting system and an inclusive process where every voter has an option uh, to get their ballot in. And some of these pilots that are happening are very fascinating because if we can get the security right, and that's a big if, right, because security is kind of the crux of all of this, and we can make sure it can be fully audited, which makes it very different than banking. Everyone always says to me, I do my banking <laughs> online, so therefore I should be able to you know, vote online. And the reality is the auditing practices are different for both, and that's why it makes voting more challenging than the banking system because 
anonymity in the voting process matters. Whereas the banking system, we know your account, you, they're connected. Sure. We can't connect your ballot and you because we have to break anonymity to keep your vote private. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a, some extra technicalities that go into the voting process, but we're engaged in a lot of that, a lot of those conversations. I'm certainly working on a lot of projects right now nationally that uh, continue to advance these sorts of pilots and these new ideas and enhance security and you know making this process better for everyone. Well, we're so honored to have you here on the podcast, but we're just so I think also you know honored to have you in our community. I mean, the work that you're doing nationally is just really is incredible. We're really really lucky to have you. Is there any anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, I well I think thank thank you to you for inviting me on. Um, I'm on the public policy committee with the Women's Chamber, and so I just think the Women's Chamber is doing some incredible things, and I'm just happy to be a part of the podcast for this. Thanks, Amber. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.